Miss Macintosh, my darling, chapter 69. The door to the room which was to occupy... No. The door to the room which I was to occupy was marked fire escape. A red light shining through the crystal glass even when I had turned off the light. The room was long and narrow. The bed was narrow. The mattress stuffed with corn husks which rustled with a papery sound in the wind. Over the bed was a picture of a silver church steeple piercing a pink cloud and garlanded with blue flowers. Underneath the words were written, Forget-me-not. There was a slop jar with big handles like ears. It contained a sediment swimming in colorless water, a sediment like salt crystals. There were wads of blonde streaked hair, combings, and a wire wastebasket. A piece of lipstick covered with tobacco hakes, oh, flakes, a roll of sodden toilet paper. Whose hair, I wondered, as I undressed in the red streaked dark. Whose hair? I could hardly see my face in the dark, warping warped looking glass only my eyes were reflected in its depths as if they had swam out of my face like two silver fishes detaching themselves from a porous underwater flower the rocking chair by the window creaked so steadily a heavy body might have been rocking in it the chair creaked and groaned reflecting my consciousness the wind blew coldly the landlord had proved to be after all as loquacious as the hangman though perhaps not so colorful in spite of his skin being as many colors as joseph's coat there being so many pictures on his arms, tattooed marks of hearts and darts and one lonely anchor. His chest was covered with heavy golden hairs as if he were first cousin to a lion. His face on closer examination was many faded colors, reddish mottled with blue and green, like his head and muscular unbroken neck. His immense strength, subdued though it was, had interested me less than the hangman's obvious frailty. The hangman's face, which was the color of skimmed milk. Very tactfully, by way of someone else, I had questioned him about the hangman. It was only in the course of a long monologue about himself and his happy marriage and this old tavern, which was going to rack and ruin and the high cost of living and the bus driver and the bus driver's old mother and the landlord's wife, who had been a circus fat lady, that he could introduce the subject to the hangman at all. The landlord had met his wife when, she was ship when he was shipwrecked and she was losing weight. She was down to 200 pounds now in her stocking feet. It was she who had owned this hotel, which was a good enough port for a man in a storm. Subject to the hangman was obviously distasteful to the landlord, who never had feared hanging. He had feared drowning. He had seen lamer ducks than the hangman. Why, what was he to the landlord but a mere transient? The landlord had seen old, Do old Doc O'Leary in Barnum's Seven Wonders of the Universe, the big tent. That was not the hangman who had done the talking, but the landlord had said knowingly as he climbed the creaking stairs. shadow who got loose after every hanging and said the things the hangman never would have said the hangman being con constitutionally cautious the hangman shadow was however the landlord had, had admitted in some ways more interesting than the hangman himself who was famous for his closed mouth understatements the landlord could assure me that i would sleep a good night's sleep a sleep undisturbed either by the doctor or the hangman he could assure me that i would sleep quieter than the dead mouse in the hangman's coat pocket for on either side of the fire escape there were old people who never made a peep peaceful old people with hardening of the arteries and the hangman would not disturb my slumbers there was no woman in the life of the hangman rather there was no woman in the life of the hangman's shadow the landlord had corrected himself cheerfully winking what were the little weeds they sprang up by themselves 
If I heard wings rustling, those would be 30 turkey buzzards who also occupied this corridor. They were big and dusty with dust-rimmed golden eyes. They were chained. They could not get loose. The landlord had corrected himself casually, smiling, tapping on Miss McIntosh's wardrobe trunk, which he had managed to carry as lightly as a suitcase. They are canaries, he had said, as big as turkey buzzards. They belong to an old woman. Tweet, tweet, ain't life sweet? He could not see how the old woman stood that continual noise in her ears. What old woman? He had pulled at his deaf ear with an air of profound listening and pointed to the door opposite mine. Tilly, he had said with an air of finality. Who is Tilly? A young girl, he had answered. A very young girl. She will knit you a babyhood. I had supposed that he had not heard my question correctly or was thinking of two altogether different persons. But no, he was speaking of one person, always of one person, for as if in an ocean, for as if in ocean depths, the two were one. The landlord had gone on to speak of the shadow of the noose and the fact that the hanging was unpopular, not because he hanged people, but because he was notoriously successful in his other enterprises. As long as I was a sailor, the landlord had said, my old mother never once worried about me. She said I was born to drown, not to hang, so when the ship went down, his feet, the hangman's, were beating the light tattoo on the ceiling above my head. All by himself was he hanging now, as his throat rasped. I did not think so, although his feet scraped and scratched like matches on a wet tinder. I thought he might even wind the watch he had said was never wound, the tiny watch which had dangled at the end of a black ribbon like a world, a world within a world. If you hear sleigh bells ringing, the landlord had said, that will be the newspaper man. He was coming home on a furlough during the last war and was thrown off a train. He has no legs, but rides around in a contraption made out of a child's sled and several pairs of roller skates. Sleigh bells help him to get through a thick traffic. The sleigh bells are rusted, and his room under the stairs was big enough for a man's head, but not big enough for a man's body. Why should it be? We charge him half price, the landlord had said. Why should, we, why should he have to pay the full rate, as my wife says, when he has no legs? He has, however, an excellent head on his shoulders. He reports all the news of what happened here 10, 15, 20 years ago. He reports all the news on old Doc O'Leary and Amadeisi and the turtle race. Who is Amadeisi? Nobody, landlord, had confessed with a disgruntled look. Maybe I was surprised by the hangman's confessions, his ramblings on and on with many a loop and double loop. But the landlord never was, for he had heard all those dull stories before, time and again. The story of a man who carried a basket of peaches over the swollen river, precedent when he could have gone in a boat. The story of a man who confessed to a murder twenty years after he committed it, so-called perfect crime. There had been no clue but a woman's hair on his coat sleeve and nobody had noticed it. What was that about the ice pick? Didn't the hangman tell that too? What was that about the arsenic in the flower bin? What was that about the air bubble? They were monotonous, those stories, like old coats hanging on a hall tree, old coats nobody ever wore, old umbrellas nobody ever opened. They were monotonous like drops of freezing rain forming a stalactite, an icicle that never melts, that hangs on the walls of a cave. The landlord got tired of hearing the same old refrain, the same old story of the blind hunting dog or the hairless pig that got loose or the mad butcher who sold human beings as hands and sides of beef. The mad butcher had kept a perfectly preserved woman in his refrigerator and was going to sell her for beef stew. What was different now, the only difference between this time and every other time the hangman had found, I might have noticed, a black poker chip in his coat pocket. But the landlord had found an artificial eye in his, only this morning, a blue eye, an eye the color of his own. Was the landlord blind? He was not. He might be deaf, but he was not blind. He knew what he knew. The hangman was not at all the man he seemed, but a prosperous farmer and the soul of respectability. That little farm he was talking of was a model dairy farm of several hundred acres with all the latest machinery, the latest improvements. The milk was never touched by human hands. The reason he tied the knot was that he got paid to tie it. He never talked to any of the parties concerned. Every hanging represented an improvement on the farm, where the mixture of grass and wheat cut when the wheat was in the milk gave a crop of excellent protein silage. 
more valuable to a dairy farm than the wheat itself. The farm yielded also great crops of peaches, big as babies' heads. No, by God, no, the landlord had shouted, pounding his chest, expanding his biceps. How old would I take the landlord to be? How old? By God, I am the one who has been around the world, he had argued blissfully, as if he were talking to himself. I am the one who has seen what I have seen. But I suppose that he has started out in life as a candy merchant at the age of ten, and for several years had made his living pulling rabbits out of his hat and plucking playing cards off the arms of people in his audience? How he had embarrassed them. He had, t had taken a silk stocking out of a coat pocket. Would I suppose that he had been, after all, a ventriloquist throwing his voice around, speaking out of empty rocking chairs and empty slop jars, and whispering into the ear of a woman who had, who had supposed she had gone to bed alone? He had made the coffee cup speak with human voices. He had made birds twitter where there were no birds. Would I suppose that he had been a sailor, and then a soldier, and then a hunter of wild animals in the jungle? Very reluctantly reluctantly against his will he had killed a little black man a very little black man who had no tongue but had swallowed a diamond there's no country i have not seen the landlord had boasted except america which my wife says i should see first i was in the intelligence during the last war i am intelligent i can say parlez-vous to little frenchies he drew his shirt farther back in order to make an important revelation there was a battleship sailing behind the hairs of his chest with the words written under it remember the marne did he remember the marne and the lucid and all the other sunken ships. There was a woman's face smiling in the palm of his hand. When he shut his palm, the woman winked. His sacred pictures were, not a, were on his back. There seemed to be nothing he had not experienced. There was a bullet still lodged in his leg from the last war, during which he had made the mistake of stepping on the face of a supposedly dead Hun. Now that was nothing, for the wound had not been fatal, and now he felt a twinge whenever there was to be a rainstorm, and needed not to notice whether the quail cried in the grass. After the last war, he had been a hunter of wild animals for Hagenbecks out of Berlin, had seen elephants copulating. Though God said in the Bible, his wife reminded him, that nobody had ever seen such a thing. God did not know what he was talking about, or else times had changed. God had never been in the hotel business. And why am I am putting you into the fire escape, the landlord had ended grandly, leaning over me. There is a young couple in the bridal suite, which was exactly the explanation he had previously given to the hangman's shadow. It's on the other side of the building, he had pointed with his red thumb. I was occupying a room on the same corridor with old doc with old doctor and a woman who kept turkey buzzards in chains. Who else? Upstairs the hangman, true to his habitual character, made not a sound. The clock should have struck somewhere telling the hour. No clock struck. The bed having lived to the ripe old age of sixty in the city of St. Louis, you did indeed die of pneumonia at the tender age of one. I am aware that if I started digging the vegetable garden I would come up upon not the skeleton of dust small infant, but of an old, old woman. But in any event, Sarah, you are dead, this town's little sister, dead as the dust, and what matter now if you drew your last breath at the age of one or sixty? The fact of the matter is, time has passed. Your family have forgotten you. I am the only man in this town who remembers you. In that case, does it not seem particularly inconsiderate of you to come haunting the only man who remembers you? And then to climb into bed with him. Sarah, surely you must know that a doctor cannot be deceived when he sees corruption. Your diseases are many. Most particularly, my dear Sarah, you suffer from the disease of death. And that is why your eyes are blue forget-me-nots, and that is why your hair is the color of grass. But was it fair of Sarah to crawl into bed with a man who had lived an honorable life? Here he was, a physician whose history was long and honorable, without blot, without stain, and Sarah, whoever she was, was causing his disgrace in the public eye. Imagine that Sarah should try to get a baby by him. Why, surely she must know that, being dead, she was a canker and the rose immortal. The dead are not immortal, and only the living are. It had been the doctor's observation over a long period of time. He cannot, therefore, extend the hospitality she was looking for, so she must go away quickly. 
If I love you, whom do I love? he sobbed. Little sister, you died long ago. We must put away our childish loves. I am an old man. He shouted, sobbed, whined. Oh, she would let him alone, for he could do no good for her now. He had done all the good he could long ago. She should go to where all lost things were and not scratch at him, clawed and imagine he could give life to her. He was drunk as a loon, in my opinion. There could be no other explanation for his remarks in the way that, however subtly they seemed, united with his own secret life. Why did not the woman Sarah answer him, he wondered as I wondered. Her perfect silence was maddening to him and to me. Oh, God damn, God damn this earnest woman, he cried, as if he acknowledged, however, the futility of his complaints against her. Now, as he talked, I gathered the picture of what he, she really looked like, how ugly she was. This poor, sniffling, thin-haunched woman who sat on her knees on the floor, rocking back and forth with her gray hair streaming over her eyes and her hands folded. God loathed this woman, the doctor said. God, in his infinite mercy, see, which sees all things. A fool, Sarah, God sees a fool as well as a wise man. Could not forgive her of her foolishness, the way she crawled discrepantly on the floor like a baby, an old, old baby, born blind. Did she have a tooth in her head? No, not a tooth in her head. Why do you try to bite me, Sarah, he asked. What did I ever do to you? Go bite the members of your own family. Did she not know what she was doing to him, how she would ruin rustled like, I thought, oh, a tired turkey buzzer? The pillow was hard, but I placed over it the small faded pillow which, upon which I had always rested my head, a pillow which had received my childhood tears. The red light still shone through the glazed glass of the public door, a searching beam like an x-ray upon my face, my thin hands almost as transparent as autumn leaves, a curtain blowing inward, long and looping like a bridal veil in the wind. I saw the leaden moon floating above a great cloud. I thought that if there should be a fire, all people would stream past me in their long nightgowns, their long hair burning like meteors as I lay still, unable to move. Perhaps for a moment I dreamed this. I was drifting towards sleep, but I was jerked back to consciousness by a quarrel between two persons in the bedroom next to mine, the voice of one so near that he might have been speaking to me. At least one person spoke out loud, but the other, more mysterious as I gradually learned, was a silent woman, perhaps even an imaginary woman, for she did not speak. The old doctor was awake and riotous. He was as mad as a March hare. He said so. He said that he was mad, old, dying, practicing medicine. Dr. Justice O'Leary, for so he called himself, announcing frequently not only his name, but the fact that he was the best medical practitioner in this country, this country ever saw, and left neglected practicing medicine among ungrateful clients all night long, was happily unaware of his recent encounter with a long-haired bus driver, engaged as he was in a long argument which seemed to shake the walls and cause the slot dry to dance a weird polka. The furniture to rattle, the picture of the church steeple to hang crooked on the wall, and I could hear rattling music and a great many hangings, wailings, the crying of an old bird dog where there were perhaps only the shadows of wings. Dr. Justice O'Leary, he who had been killed in an illusory traffic accident early in, earlier in the evening, he who even now, if the bus driver had been right, should be pinned under a steering wheel in a flooded meadow, he who had driven without a windshield or a steering wheel or a tire was happily unaware of this routine matter, caught as he was in a marvelous routine of his own. He had never given up life so long as there was hope, Dr. O'Leary was saying. He had blown his breath into the mouths of dead men, even when their mouths stank. Upon the first occasion of his witnessing the death of a man, he had seen something steal out of the room, a mist, a vapor. Since then, though, he had listened and listened. He had never heard anything at all go out of the room. Death had ceased to be a drama. His morning was like that of a wind rising and falling. God damn it, Sarah! God damn it, Sarah! That was the old refrain. I had heard even in my sleep how Sarah was disgracing him. Why have you come back to taunt me with your old sad face, he said. You know you are a dead woman, my little sister. Everybody around here thinks that you died at the age of one or put under a tombstone in the vegetable garden. Even I think so. 
For though I am a man accustomed to independent thought, my dear Sarah, I have gradually slipped, in, slipped into an acceptance of the public opinion that, far from his medical practice, the news of her return from the grave ever got out. Why must she seek to disgrace him, most particularly as long ago to get away from him, she had run away with a traveling salesman? Had she not disgraced herself before, often and often, the public eye which saw all things was God's eye? Suppose that God winked. God would still see her. Sarah, those beautiful women in seven counties. Sarah with her wide forehead. Everybody knew that what Sarah looked like. She had, had she no pride, no reticence, not a remnant, none, none, not a straw, he screamed, kicking at the lively furniture and doors slammed up and down the corridor loudly. This was not Sarah in bed with him. This was an imposter, he announced feebly, seeming to swallow his words. Oh, God, God damn it. The outside of the cup was shining. This was a young woman in his arms, but the inside was corruption. He moaned a warm wood. Oh, God, let this cup pass from him and I in the room next to his. Could hear the rusted bed springs bounce up and down. Oh, God, did Sarah think for a moment he was the man he once was? Could she not see how time had passed? His crippled hands, his crippled feet, the blindness, the stony blindness of his eyes. There were only stones hanging in the orchards now. Better a stone cherub than a baby now, for the stone cherub would not awaken, and he was ready to sink into his grave. Dear, she would leave. She should leave him alone, most particularly as he had a great many professional matters on his mind, a great many appointments with his patients. All he asked for was privacy, the privacy of the doctor's office. Could not Sarah see all those women streaming in, each with her morning sickness, each with her swollen nipples, each with her complaints against the male? Many a woman was brought to a childbed against her will. Many a woman had asked for his help, but had he ever given it? For God knew he was no abortionist, and why should he be for whom all of life was an abortion of misshapen things, dreams which would never be real, things not there, twisted trees and malformed clouds and faces in water, faces under ice. The old doctor was up again, weaving across the door, back and forth as the furniture rattled, and even my bed shook in sympathy, banging, screaming, and pursued his uneven way. Oh, goddamn humanity! The old doctor had no rest. It was obvious that if God is not the great physician, is not a doctor, an ordinary simple doctor has no rest, even after office hours. Dr. O'Leary was now cross-questioning the woman Sarah, I supposed, melodiously, unctuously, though he still got no answer, only her sniveling. When was the last time she had enjoyed sexual communion with her husband? Not her husband, and who was the man? Who was to be the father of the child? But as she had come to seek his professional services only, why was Sarah crawling on the floor? Why was she lying flat on the floor kicking her legs? She had no pride, no reticence. That was it. She was a baby herself. Besides, she was spiteful. I am the only one who remembers you, Sarah, he said. I have forgotten you. I have put you out of my memory. I have devoted my life to hard work, and now at this late date, no, you are the wrong woman. Sarah's face was not covered with pimples. Sarah's hair was black. There is a mistake somewhere. You have gotten to the wrong bedroom. Were you looking for the fire escape? Consider Sarah the history of his life. Was she blind, deaf, dumb? Who was she? Oh, will you not go sit under a palm tree in Florida, Sarah? My God, why hast thou deserted me? God had deserted him, a man who loved humanity, a man who had brought babies into this wintry world, and who, often and often, had got no pay for his services but a bushel of rotten walnuts with the worms crawling in them, small green worms. Yes, and the turnips, the turnips, bushels of turnips exchanged for his services. He loathed the sight of a turnip. Could anyone get blood out of a turnip, Sarah? Why was it that Sarah crawled all over him, her hair hanging like a curtain down across his eyes, and why did she laugh at his misery, his helplessness? What had he ever done to deserve such high-handed treatment? Was there any reward, Jesus Christ, my God? Jerusalem, Jerusalem! He had never been a father himself. He had never wished to be a father. Mayo, Mayo! He could have been one of the brothers Mayo carrying cancer. 
He knew there was a cancer eating into his own face. He knew, but he was the baby doctor, and his office was filled with clients, among them a most curious case, a woman who was always pregnant with an imaginary baby, whom she who had so many miscarriages. Sarah, he said, I can do nothing for you. I ask only that you leave me so that I may attend to the needs of my other clients. He would give her the money she needed, anything, anything on earth, to keep her from haunting him with the fact that her child had had no father. She did not have to stay here in this godforsaken hotel, working in her way. She did not have to stick her nose into a dirty, dirty, dirty slop jar. She was under no necessity of earning her living in that way. Clean, dirty slop jars, Sarah, what beauty did she see in it? She must not touch any of his instruments. She must not touch his clothes, which were folded on a chair. If she touched his clothes, they would get up and walk out of the room by themselves, carrying his medical kit, leaving him here alone, leaving him the doctor while his clothes went about the doctor's business. The sort of thing, he assured her earnestly, had happened once or twice before. What then would his clients think when only his clothes came to deliver them of their young? He was a doctor, not a priest, Sarah, but what angered him until he was almost speechless? Why could Sarah never answer a decent question when he put it to her, down on his knees? Why does she stand there grinning, spitting? The reason you can have no child, he said, you are a child yourself, dead at the age of one. He laughed, and for a moment it seemed that he and Sarah were engaged in a fistfight. I did not hear her laughing. Ah, she had gone away a long time ago, high and mighty, but now he was here, but now he saw her here as she was, a dirty baby crawling on the floor, a senile baby with a fuzz of gray hair and not a tooth in her head. Who could love such a love as hers? Who could endure the sight of his love when his love was old? The doctor could not, and damn her withered hide, damn the ghost she was, he was going to call the house management, he was going to put the ghost out like a dog in the cold. Not a tooth in your head, Sarah, you have rounded from time's beginning to time's end. Oh, Jesus Christ, my God, he sobbed in the gathering mist. His long sobbing was whining like an old flea-bitten dog. What was eating her? If it was money she wanted, had he not given her the last red cent, that penny he stole off a dead man's eyes, and the car parked in the street, could she not get into it and drive away in any direction wherever he, her will took her? And there was the wide world to choose from, Florida, Kansas, Timbuktu. She could have the car. He would keep the kitty cart with its broken steering wheel. Nothing could stop the doctor. The great barber, Sarah. You can have the great barber, he whined. I don't know where it is. Look in my coat pocket. What he did not... What he did know, his house was his Englishman's castle, and he did not want the woman in it. No, nor in his bed, and her feet were cold, cold as ice, lest he remind her again, and her legs cold as ice, breaking and crawling around him. And he would not, he could not, stand her cold breath on his cheek and her running eyes, her whitened eyelids, her sores, her sores, the stink, stink of the dead. His voice broke. She must go away, far away, just as she had gone once before, he pleaded, and then he would remember her. And then she would seem beautiful, beautiful, because distant and forgotten. Was she his sister? If not the sister, whose sister was she? Had any O'Leary disgraced himself before he whined down on his knees, washing out dirty slop jars? Was this her idea of life? Sarah, what was her business in the bedroom anyhow, he whined. Sarah must get out of here, for God's sake, before some of the pregnant women came and saw her. She could go through his pockets. She could take his watch from where it hung around the bedpost. She could strip him naked. Naked doctor was better than the clothes without the doctor. Naked we come into this world, and naked we go out of it. Sarah, if you stay here much longer, he said, you will catch all my diseases. You are a young woman, Sarah, too young for this kind of life. He whined and he screamed, the bed shaking as he pounded the pillow. Poor Sarah, the walls shaking. Oh, Sarah, I screamed. No, no. Uh, he whined and he screamed, the bed shaking as he pounded the pillow. Or Sarah, the walls shaking. 
Go Sarah, I screamed. Was this a decent place to die in, he asked, this godforsaken hole with its diseases, its diseases, and he knew them all like his own heart beating, hammering, cancer, tuberculosis, and the kidney trouble, Sarah, the kidney trouble, the bowel trouble, head, nose, throat, eye, ear trouble, venereal diseases, scales, bone, old age creeping up on you. Oh, my lady gonorrhea, was she beautiful? Was she your mother's only daughter? Miss Macintosh, my darling, chapter 70. Someone had triumphed, and someone had been subdued in the room next to mine, and now there was the silence, except for the voices of things not animated by human consciousness. The walls creaking with refrain, a curtain rustling, a wire basket upon which the wind strummed fitful music. Perhaps I slept for a while, or perhaps I dreamed. Perhaps I was awake and dreaming of the past as if the past persisted, for here, where the rustling red light beam disturbed the darkness which should have enclosed me, here so many miles away, so many years away from home, there was a faceless woman, Mrs. Hogden, who, though I never saw her, implored my attention. If one is pursued by a phantom, a creature of the mind only, then at least the phantom should be ethereal. But this Mrs. Hogden, rustling importantly behind me, was fat, corporal, moon-eyed, not beautiful, waddling in and out of my dreams. So confused, so confusing. She would seem to be another than she was, a substitute for the true subject of my dreams, on whom all dreams hinged. Miss Macintosh, the sand blowing in her eyes, the water whirling at her feet, said that I must never waste my time daydreaming, or even night dreaming, she would have disapproved of most ardently, and that it was of her I dreamed the most when she was dead, in fact, of her only. Miss Macintosh, with a firm hand and a resolute mind and the unswerving ideal of common sense, brought me up to understand that my mother's way of life was far from average, was not to be in imitated by a good woman such as she saw, saw me becoming, a woman like herself, simple and average and clear-eyed. And then years later, there came this Mrs. Hogden to the house. There in the place where Miss Macintosh had been, there in that very playroom where Miss Macintosh, my old nursemaid, had once walked back and forth, clapping her hands as I, as I did my physical exercise on my basting stitches to hold together surf and shore. It was her great desire that I should be brought up as a kindly extrovert. Introversion was something she simply could not bear. Mrs. Hogden, who I never saw, would rustle behind me when I wearied of Miss Macintosh, whom I had seen with terrible clarity. It was a trick of my imagination, this substituting of the one for the other. Miss Macintosh and Mrs. Hogden were widely different from each other, even a fool could recognize at a glance, and yet the substitution would take place like the moon appearing where there had been the sun in the sky, Mrs. Hogden being the lesser radiance. This fat old woman, according to Lisa Lund, my mother's young companion, who took my place when carrying a large suitcase I escaped from my mother's house, was a very dubious character, a shoplifter, or something equally vicious, if she was sure, for who knew human fallacies better than Lisa Lund, a would-be physicist working for her living in order to help support her mother who was poor and mad and dreamed that she was rich, even as my mother dreamed that she was poor. Lisa Lund prided herself on seeing immediately through Mrs. Hogden's pretenses, pretensions. During my absence, this fat old woman appeared one day at the door with all her worldly goods, either on her person or in her two-door Ford, which stood stalled in the driveway under the dripping trees. She was, according to her own introduction, a teacher of arithmetic, but Lisa Lund, surveying her overladen person, was sure that she was one of those faceless shoplifters her sister watched out for in a high tower at the ten-cent store, such as the old man who stole nothing but egg beaters, for which he had no use, normal, no mortal use, whatever, 
The old man had pleaded that they brought him a step closer to his dead wife. The attic of his house was full of acres. The life I required was the life which required, like his, a lost companion, not merely the self-centered affliction of the right hand loving the left. And what if there were an egg beater and no egg to beat, I wondered dreamily. Perhaps there were people who were doomed to disappointment. Mrs. Hogman whispered behind me. I was afraid to turn my head. As when half asleep one knows very well that the coat hanging on a nail in the darkness is a man. One even sees the coat sleeve lift. She had a broad-cheeked, smiling face and bleached hair arranged in plastered curls across her low forehead. Her face was blandly expressionless except for her slightly aggressive chin, which betrayed perhaps her true character. She might have been a panhandler at the entrance of a subway. Her light-colored eyes were normally big and seemed to focus on no object. Although she was arrayed in the most diverse objects, a smashed hat with a wilted ostrich feather, snub-toed no snub velvet slippers covered with sand, a beaded bag, cardboard boxes, a silk stocking which crawled out of a capricious pocket, she was wearing at least four coats of seemingly graduated sizes, the one fitting snugly over the other, and all contributing to the illusion that she was not so tall as she was wide. Oh, she was a creature compounded of illusions. Every coat pocket seemed to be burdened with packages or even such unwrapped objects as a silk stocking and a fluted teapot. Her dress, visible where the coats did not meet, was purple laced. Was purple. Bleh. Her dress, visible where the coats did not meet, was purple lace, which seemed, in view of the fact that she had been driving in the cold wind all afternoon, an extravagance like the ostrich feather. Cardboard boxes held together by numerous strings were ready to burst from all over her squat person, just as she herself seemed ready to burst out of her coats and her lemon-colored gloves from which twisted strings extended. She was carrying, among other precarious objects, an empty birdcage, held on the crook of her little finger in a package of birdseed. Draped around her rotund shoulders was a row of Jap Javanese temple bells which whispered as she spoke. There was a tape measure around her stubby neck. Innumerable strings of beads made her look more like a Christmas tree than a human being. And there she stood in the hallway, bustling and officious and smiling, as she announced to Lisa Lund that she hoped she had not arrived too late, for my mother was expecting her. Lisa Lund, whom she naturally supposed to be the daughter of the house. Poor Lisa Lund, the amateur physicist. But are not all physicists amateurs? My invalided mother was expecting Mrs. Hogden and Mrs. Logden. She mumbly sickly, she mumbled thickly herself, the dear companion who had been hired with such wild enthusiasm. It had not been necessary with either of them have an, it had not been necessary that either of them have an interview in advance of their agreement, for they had both understood so well that truth is beauty and beauty is truth. Mrs. Hogden promised that she would surely reflect my mother's every mood. Lisa Lund was to tell my mother that, true to her promise, Mrs. Hogden had arrived a little breathlessly, and had brought all her personal possessions with her, everything she owned in the wide world, so that there was nothing to go back home for. And besides, she'd sold her home to one of those European refugees who had come from a town filled with storks, families of storks on every rooftop. If they could stay in the town, why couldn't he? Would James, the chauffeur, be so kind as to carry the rest of Mrs. Hogden's things from the car to the house? My mother having told her that she would have James to help her. Her mattress, she feared, was very wet. The car she had ridden was certainly stalled, the engine cold. But unfortunately, it had not, it had not died out until the very moment it reached the door, the ivory-colored door. There had been eight ivory-colored doors. Mrs. Hogden's eyes had watered with automatic tears, although she was still smiling. She had the almost seraphic look of an old alcoholic. You, would t you could tell from the start just what she was, Lisa Lund said. Her eyes were pink like a rabbit's, and her nostrils continually twinkled. There was a long, looped hair growing from her chin. Just run and tell your mother like a dear child, Mrs. Hogden said to Lisa Lund, whose mother was fifteen miles away in a telescope tenement. I'm here, old Johnny on the spot. 
She was already relieving herself of packages. Now a shoehorn clattered from a person, now a fork. Where, she asked, shall I put my property? Where? She turned her head from side to side like a pigeon, seeing nothing. Or did she see everything at a glance? Who could tell? Receiving the agency's letter, which enclosed my mother's letter, offering her, uh, or a woman like her, a job for the rest of her natural life, but no longer, Mrs. Hogden had been delighted by the prospect of an endless employment in such a situation as was carefully described. After the first speculative instant, she had not hesitated. She had sold the Dutch windmill, which was her home on Upper Long Island, an old windmill with winking eyes and broken arms, and had brought only those objects which she could carry with her and towards which she felt a sentimental attachment. What need would she have now for a lopsided four-postered bed carved with lion's heads and an overstuffed chair that was falling to pieces and the andirons from the, andirons from the fireplace that looked like hunting dogs? It was sad that she had to leave the Dutch windmill behind her, there on a ledge of grass-tufted earth overlooking the long sweep of the gray beach. But after all, this life is made up of deprivations, most of which Mrs. Hogden had experienced in her long life. Mrs. Hogden, though, was smiling broadly and not likely to tell the nature of her experience. As long as life seemed short, she smiled. Hers was perhaps the gift of prophecy. Mrs. Hogden or Mrs. Logden? Nobody knew which it was, as nobody thought to ask. A rose by any other name would smell as sweet, my mother said when told of this uncertainty. Would smell as strong, Lisa Lund said. It was winter, yes, and Mrs. Hogden had been living all alone in that Dutch windmill, where there was only sand mixed with crystal snow at the doorway, and where an arctic tern with a black-rimmed eye had had the amazing habit of stopping every year for the simple purpose, it seemed, of looking at her. Year after year, like the tides coming in. Most distressing, the arctic tern's punctual arrival every year, most distressing to Mrs. Hogden, who realized that he was compelled by his own nature to circle the earth from pole to pole as if he were some kind of minor planet on its course in the starry endless heavens. But for what reason would he fly from one bleak spot to another, and why had he always singled her out? And why did he sit and stare at her with his black-rimmed eye? What did he want to look at Mrs. Hogden for? She had never been one of those naked ba bathers in the surf. He might have been a different turn each year, but he was always the same turn, she knew, for he was slightly unsteady on his feet, even lurching. There was simply no explanation for his coming to look at her in that ins insulting way every year, no explanation but his sheer perversity. Maybe it was all an accident, his coming. At any rate, it had just seemed to her that she was wasting her life away. That Dutch windmill was always difficult to heat, was uninhabitable, and there were no neighbors, and there was no one to talk to. So when the agency had written, enclosing my mother's letter, offering her or a woman like her a job for the rest of her natural life, but no longer, why? It seemed a solution to her problems to come as quickly as possible before it was too late. Here she was, breathless, still breathless, for she had driven a long way, looking back every once in a while to see whether that white bird was following her. But it was always a naughty child throwing a snowball. The bird was not following her, could have no inkling of her present whereabouts, for he had only one schedule of flight from pole to pole, his instinct. Mrs. Hogden had made, besides, quite a few left turns and right turns that had gone around and around the block looking for a convenient parking space. She was considerably inland then. Now she was on the coastline again, as our house had its back to the ocean. And no wonder, no wonder, she said, who would want to look at the ocean? No wonder my mother had black curtains at the back of the many-windowed house. My mother was in mourning for the ocean. Mrs. Hogden had gone to the great trouble of parking her car on the steep, sleek-covered incline in order to shop for a small, three-legged blackboard and a box of colored chalk, which my mother had instructed her to bring for their first lessons in, lesson in arithmetic. Two and two always making four, according to Mrs. Hogden, who looked uncertainly at Lisa Lund. That was all my mother wished to be taught over and over again. 
since her last companion, a young physics teacher, had confused her most shamefully, not to be ashamed of herself, ought to be shaken upside down like a shoplifter by the store detective until the stars rattled. The sick room was to be turned into a schoolroom now, however, and the past forgotten, for that was what my mother wished. As soon as Mrs. Hogden could get her gloves off, but as her brain left felt but as her brain felt like an iceberg, she would also require a cup of tea with a peppermint dissolved in it, if that was not asking too much. They would then have their first lesson in addition, Mrs. Hogden predicted, beaming, or they could begin with subtraction. If Farmer Brown had four apples, Mrs. Hogden said, seraphically licking her lips, and you took two apples away from him, dear, dear, that would be unkind. How many apples would Farmer Brown have left? There is no Farmer Brown, of course. You must first imagine him. How many apples he has, has not, how many you take away from him, and those he has not. Dear, dear, Mrs. Hogden would require at least four apples in order to make her demonstrations, visual education being so progressive. But there was no worry, for she had brought the fruit herself along with that mattress. Alas, however, the difficulties ahead. My mother, informed of the presence of this overdressed, over-talkative woman who had arrived when nobody was expecting her, affected the most profound, glazed astonishment, declaring that she had never heard of such a person, and had certainly made no arrangements with her or any agency representing her. She was an impostor, a liar, a daydreamer, a thief. My mother had never written a letter to Mrs. Hogden in her life, and that was that. She should be told that she had turned in at the wrong driveway. There were nine driveways. And if my mother had never written a letter inviting Mrs. Hogden to her house, how could she have learned so much of my mother's life, even her dream life? For as the argument between my mother and Mrs. Hogden proceeded, Lisa Lund acting as the messenger, it became increasingly apparent that she knew a great deal many details which only my mother could have divulged to her. My mother had seemed to dictate a letter in a rhapsodic mood as her eyes glittered like sharp-pointed diamonds. From nobody else could Mrs. Hogden have learned so much of my mother's most private life. Who but my mother could have told Mrs. Hogden the head of Alcibiadi? Alcibiades was in the drain, drain pipe, literally. Who but my mother would have mentioned James? And what was all this about a whale swimming into my mother's bedroom? And what was all this about droves of peaceful whales committing suicide upon a lonely beach? Granted, yes, it was faintly impressive that Mrs. Hogden should know of such matters. My mother conceded, finally. Nevertheless, how did she know who Mrs. Hogden was? The woman was a puzzle to her. Not once did she express a desire to see the woman.